Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast on venture capital, technology, and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals. If you're new to the podcast, go ahead and follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and definitely check out all of our existing episodes. Jeff Himwan joined EW in 1999 and served as a managing director to the firm's legacy venture capital funds. He has over 20 years of experience as a scientist, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist, and specializes in investments in the pharmaceutical sector. Dr. Himwan holds a Bachelor of Science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and a Doctor of Philosophy degree from Harvard University. And with that, we'd love to welcome you to the show. Uh, thank you. I'm honored to join you. Awesome. So, so I know we just gave a little kind of background on, on who you are and your experience, Jeff, but you, know, you currently serve as the managing director for three of EW's healthcare's kind of legacy funds. What does that look like in terms of your role and duty to those portfolio companies? Uh, I don't think we've ever had someone on the show who, who has that kind of role. Um, well, it's basically not any different as being an actively um, engaged in a, fund, in a fund that's actually making active management decisions. I mean, you just referred to the fact that it's a legacy, which means that those funds are older. But basically what it comes down to is I'm still on the board of directors of the portfolio companies that are in that fund, and we're trying to uh, resolve all these portfolio companies into successful exits. And so on a day-to-day level, um, you know, you just you make the investment and you do everything that you can to make the investment work for the fund, which means that you try to get out with a lot as much money as you can, uh, depending on what the exact situation is. So on a fundamental basis, it, it, uh, it's no different than any other investment that you've made. Great. Awesome. So, so we're, we're also curious, given the pandemic, how has uh, this kind of current operating environment impacted EW Healthcare Partners' investment strategy? And was there any sort of slowdown or change in the investment thesis as the onset of this pandemic, um, like the rest of venture capital? Or are you sort of insulated from that, given the uh, specific sector in which you're operating in healthcare? I, that's a good question. I mean, I think that most people uh, are affected. Almost everybody probably is affected by the pandemic. And I think that, you know, one thing you notice first off is the recruitment of clinical trials are much slower. Um, and so you have to plan accordingly that when you're actually trying to do a trial, it's just going to take a lot longer. It's going to take a lot more time to know whether something is working or not because you will not be able to complete that trial in the manner and time that you think it's going to happen originally, certainly before the before the pandemic. And um, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of money in the pandemic, so especially in the pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, business has been good, just like for example, Zoom and others. And so sure. uh, we, some of our portfolio companies and things that you're looking to invest in, you would look into things that are related to the pandemic, like disinfectants, you know, like new vaccine platforms, new potential drugs for viral infections, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, I think that everybody's been affected and you make a judgment, you make judgments and moves to try to get on top of that. So on a portfolio company basis, you know, a lot of the portfolio companies, some are now pursuing vaccines, some are now pursuing therapeutics for corona infections. Um, And that's mainly how it's being affected. On a day-to-day level, uh, we are affected just like everybody else. We can't gather physically together in one office. We have to do things remotely, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, you just kind of deal with the situation as everybody's dealing with the situation and make the best out of it. But, yeah, it's definitely being impacted. I mean, I think the biggest surprise has been in, for the whole industry, especially in healthcare, is seems to be a lot more money going into healthcare. Sure. I think yeah. it's just because just people see that a lot of these vaccine companies uh, as the way out of this pandemic. And so we are definitely riding that wave. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and so I'm kind of curious um, to look at it from just a broader perspective. Like, how do you see venture capital fitting into the the healthcare and pharmaceutical space? You know, a lot of these startups are like very research intensive. They might take longer to go to market than maybe a SaaS based company. Um, like, like, how does that impact the return on investment for a VC firm? Like you mentioned how you're still on the board for some of these legacy companies. Like, when does that exit come? Like, when do you give that, the money back to the LPs if it's like a longer time frame? And what's kind of the expectation there? Okay. So you actually asked a lot of questions. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Ram a little bit. All, no, no, that's okay. They're all very good questions. So in terms of, you know, where does it fit in the ecosystem? Um, it's, it's, it's a fantastic question. I mean, in some ways we have... To answer it properly, you have to talk about the ecosystem. So, and that means how, you know, where where the money actually flows from, where we get the money and where it goes, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, I'm assuming that you know some of that already. Um, but where it fits in the ecosystem specifically is, I still think that we are basically the people that finance innovation. And that, that's the basic answer to your question. And so I think in the pharmaceutical industry, the biggest sort of inefficiency with the industry is that big pharma and big biotech, they they forgot how, and there are various reasons why this is the case. And, um, you know, that's almost an interesting topic just for an entire 20-minute conversation on itself, but they forgot how to innovate. They can't really invent a new drug. Uh, what, they're really, what they're really, really good at is um, commercialization, you know, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. And so what they tend to do is they tend to buy companies that develop new drugs. So the innovation comes from another company, which is financed by venture capital, and then the bigger fish eats it. So big pharma, big biotech, essentially, that's their ecosystem is end stage clinical development and commercialization, marketing. They sell the stuff, but they don't actually know, they know how to invent, but not efficiently. And they've kind of, the the industry has, I don't know whether the right word is evolved or degenerated, or probably a little bit of both. So that what happens is that Venture capital's role is to finance the development of new things, of new drugs, of innovation, of new inventions, to a point such that big pharma, big biotech can then buy these things once it's already sort of formulated. And and there are various stages of development in which it's purchased. You know, I think depending on who the buyer is um, and depending on how much risk they want to take. But most deals, uh, after you know the drug, that the drug works, which is post-phase two, after an, a really placebo-controlled, you know, very clean, gold-standard phase two efficacy study, or even after approval, where all the risk is taken out. And that's where you see a lot of the M&A activity. But that's in that larger ecosystem, that is exactly the role of venture capitalism, I think. It is to finance this true innovation, to get it to a point where big pharma, big biotech can then take that asset and run with it and sell it to the public. Yeah, it, that, that makes a lot of sense. And to, to loop back to like the second part of how it's generally kind of like longer, right? Like how does that impact like when the LPs expect back the money? Because usually it's like a five, seven year fund, like for traditional VC, right? Is that longer for like healthcare? Um, Right. That's a great question again. So to really answer that is you have to talk a little bit about how the traditional structure of these venture firms are formed. And, you know, if I was an LP, my timeline would be yesterday. You know, I want my money back 10 times yesterday. The day before <laughs> I, you know, that, that was my answer. But the way it's actually structured is they each venture fund tends to be, on average, a 
a 10-year financial instrument. And so you basically have 10 years to make good on it. And uh, you have the ability to extend that 10 years. Uh, it would require a majority vote usually, or even a supermajority. Sometimes it's more than a 50% threshold, depending on what the agreements are. And you typically would extend it for one year at a time. So at the end of 10 years, you ask for another year, and you say 11th year, the 12th year, 13th year. And as you say, in this drug development game, you know, it takes a long time to bake the cake, so to speak. You know, so yeah. it, it would be, like you want to sell the cake after it's completely baked, because that's when it tastes good. You know, sure. you don't want to sell it while it's still raw. But mm -hmm. sometimes you're forced it while it's still raw. And so as a portfolio manager, as a fund manager, you try to um, build a portfolio such that you have consistent exits on basically every year. And what that right. means is that the first few investments on that 10-year horizon, you're looking at a very late stage asset that you believe could have an exit very shortly, like in a year or two or something like that. And then, you know, you you do have a mix. If, if you are in a traditional mixed portfolio and you 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 do a few of them where you can you feel that it could be a five or ten year horizon before you take an exit. So in terms of the the trick, so to speak, is that you have to realize that a lot of times you can make an investment and you don't have to wait until the drug gets approved mm -hmm. um, for somebody to buy it. Sure. You know, it could be you could get you could sell it after phase one data, you could sell it after phase two data, you could sell it after phase three data, anywhere along. It's like sort of you build a house and you don't have to, a lot of times you could sell the house before the whole house is even completed, mm -hmm. and before it's finished, et cetera, et cetera, depending right. on how badly the buyer wants it. And it could be just a fantastic location for the buyer, you know, and so if you find the right buyer, they're willing to buy early, earlier stage on. And we've sold certainly over the years, uh, over the 25 years that I've been a uh, venture capitalist, um, you know, we've sold assets, we meaning myself and my partners, had any anywhere along that stage of development um, from preclinical phase one, phase two, phase three, all the way to approval. So you mm -hmm. just try to, as a, as a venture capitalist, as someone who's, managing a 10-year fund with a 10-year horizon, you try to make your bet so that, you know, basically every year you have an exit or two, hopefully. Sure. And that determines how, what you invest when. I guess that's that's sort of the, the main thing. But, you know, to get back to your our main point, sometimes your biggest, your biggest hits are the ones that you hold longest because the cake will taste better when it's completed, you know? So yeah. it, it may not, some of our investments, you know, in the first 10 years or so, just doing it by the numbers, you know, it may not look good, but after it matures on the 11th or 12th year, I mean, those are huge, huge exits. Sure. Um, that sense you have to convince then people in the fund, your limited partners and everybody else that, you know, you need that extra time. So you extend it for one year, then you extend it again a year after that, and you extend it again a year after that. Mm -hmm. And that, that's that's basically on a practical level what happens. Um, but, you know, when you when you make the investment, you, you have, I mean, I think the key thing is to actually think about it backwards. So you have to understand before you make the investment what is the potential exit? And I always sure. think about the exit first. And so you try not to make an investment unless you believe that there's some reasonable likelihood of a profitable exit within a reasonable time frame, which is mm -hmm. if it's a fund, then you're thinking it's, you know, somewhere around three, four, five years. That's what you told yeah. and, and And you're going to fail some and sometimes uh, it's not going to work out because things are not in your control. And sometimes you exit faster than that. And mm -hmm. overall, it kind of comes out. 
Yeah. And, and so like you mentioned how kind of obviously the as the cake is, is you know, cooked uh, or baked, um, you know, it's better after like each uh, phase is that are those kind of the benchmarks that are used for like when maybe the startup will raise another round? Because, you know, traditionally in in typical like, you know, SaaS, for example, they'll raise new money when they like hit a certain revenue target or they have product market fit or something like that. But that doesn't really apply for like healthcare, pharma. So what are like the the benchmarks that would, you know, have a startup to go and, you know, raise more money? Right. Yeah, that's a, another great question. So basically what you what you should do when you're building a startup biotech or pharmaceutical company um, probably applies to other industries as well is you raise enough to get you to be able to raise the next round, you know, so <laughs> yeah, steps. And so it's on the ideal case, say, on a pharmaceutical biotech company, uh, the ideal fantasy case is you get enough money so that you can take it all the way to approval, you know, but that, that is highly, highly unlikely. In the, I think the historical average is probably something like $400 million from start to finish. You know? So what you do is you do that in, in stages and likely if you're going starting from zero, it's not going to be you who's going to reach the end and the finish line of an approval. And so you go into what you perceive to be the next significant value inflection point, in which case when you reach that point, you can raise more money to proceed on. So as you know, it's preclinical uh, work first to phase one, to phase two, to phase three, to a regulatory filing, to an approval, to a launch. And so I think that, you know, you you definitely, most, most, most startup companies in biotech, pharmaceutical, they will try to raise enough to get to into the into a human trial, so past preclinical into phase one, and some sort of efficacy data. So call it like a phase one B two A trial, but it's not. It's just sort of a teaser that you know there's some evidence that it would actually work in a human. That's a common value inflection point, and the second value inflection point after that would be a gold standard placebo control, double-blinded, multi-center, randomized phase two trial. And so that would be ideally the second, you'd raise enough, you'd, so one, one, your first raise, your series A, so to speak, would be to get to that value inflection point where you pass preclinical and you can go into the clinic and then your second thing would be where you know that the drug works because, you know, if you look at probabilistically, most of the failures along this progression is in that critical phase two step where you're actually testing whether the drug actually works or not. And then from there, you would then raise the money to do a pivotal registration trial, and then you would launch. You mm -hmm. know? So I don't know through sort of this is a little bit of a digression not really but I don't know if you've gone through in the past what the probabilistic um, things are for moving forward but sure. to, and lots of data and all that but you know as a rule of thumb it's basically probability is two-thirds for each stage except for that phase two which is kind of like one-third so what I'm saying is that mm. it is sort of two-thirds probability from, from ground zero when you start, you almost have like statistically you have a two-thirds of chance of making it into a human. Mm -hmm. And then phase one to phase two, you have two-thirds. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so the odds start two, dwindling quick. <laughs> what? The, the odds start dwindling quick when you multiply all the two-thirds together, I'd say. <laughs> exactly. So that's not exactly what I was going to get to. So <laughs> if you... If, so let's just go through this. And this is actually, you know, really important stuff. So, so it's two thirds roughly from start to getting into a human, mm -hmm. and then 
from phase one to phase two is two thirds. From phase two to phase three, that's where most of the failures occur, and it's one third. And then from once you are in a phase three registration, it's about two thirds to actually getting to an approval. So if you multiply that out, it's roughly 10% actually, um, mm. historically from start to finish. So roughly take you 10 years if everything goes right. And my estimate is that it will roughly cost you about $400 million all in. That's wow. if you go in a straight line and everything works, you know, so, so when you see pharmaceutical industry say that it costs a billion dollars to develop a drug because they're calculating the failures as well, sure. and pulling them together, right? But if you went in a straight line on average, based on my experience, all things you you add in all the costs. It's not not just clinical development costs, but the cost to actually run the company because you have to have infrastructure, etc. Sure. It's it's close to 400 million. Wow. All the way from one from beginning to end, but. On the other hand, you look at, you know, say, Humira, which is the biggest selling prescription drug, and they're selling, at last I checked, they're selling $1.5 billion worth per month. <laughs> so that covers that's the 400. <laughs> yeah, that's per month. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, if you want to know how big that number is, just think about, like, say, Put it in your your generation's perspective. Think about Infinity War and Endgame, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the two biggest sellers, I believe. And the last time I checked, total revenue was like two billion dollars. Sure. So that that would be Humira in two months, <laughs> plus a month. So that's and they are. Yeah, Humira is an outlier because it's selling twenty billion dollars a year. But there are 25 prescription drugs that are selling, you know, three and a half billion per year or more. So that's why it's a huge industry. That that's that's the payoff. Plus, if you're an investor, oftentimes you don't have to wait until you get an approval. You don't have to complete the race. So you can sell stuff along the line, along the path after phase one, phase two, et cetera, and somebody buys it, and that's happened to us several times, and then they find out that it didn't work, you know, later on. But, I mean, I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And and so we've talked a lot about how long it takes to develop and then ultimately exit, you know, a valuable product in healthcare. But there's this kind of general consensus kind of... uh, in VC, not really in, in healthcare, I would imagine, but generally in VC and entrepreneurship, that startups and entrepreneurs should kind of fail fast and fail hard. How do you know VCs and startups in the healthcare industry specifically balance that concept with the kind of do no harm philosophy and cautiousness that is necessary in the medical field generally? Well, you still try to definitely, I mean, I don't think it's actually uh, mutually exclusive and they're not contradictory. You know, I think that you do sure. both. So you you do try to fail fast because you want to know if it's going to work or not sooner rather than later. But obviously, um, you you have to, because, you know, for you to go into a human clinical trial, you have to check a lot of boxes and the FDA will not allow you to test in humans um, until you check all these boxes, which means a lot of preclinical tests, a lot of toxicology and mice and monkeys and other non-human animal forms. And then you have to try to develop a manufacturing process that you feel can develop a very consistent product that's safe. You know, so you you cannot cut corners on that kind of stuff. So yes, in that sense, I think for the pharmaceutical industry. You know, there's the the lower limit as to how much you can find out before it fails. It's probably bigger than in other industries, but okay. the basic principle applies. So you you do try to you try to do a definitive experiment as soon as you can. So you try to figure out whether or not this drug will work or not. And so typically, when you talk about since we just talked about how the steps work, you know, you wouldn't find out in the human until you do 
a randomized control study and a phase two efficacy study, you know, and and by then a lot of money has gone into it. But obviously you you try to model uh, that disease state or something in a non-human animal and mice and also and maybe in non-human primates before you do that. So if it doesn't look good in mice or it doesn't look good in non-human primates, then you might want to just kill it right then and there, you know. But having said that, and it's more the other way, as they say, you know, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. So it doesn't always, <laughs> and that that probably explains part of that two-thirds strategy, that two-thirds probability. You know, it's not the same because whenever you do a model, it's it's like when you when you speak and you use an analogy. At some point, the analogy breaks down. It's the same thing. You know, when you're generating a non-human animal model, it's only a model, and you wouldn't really know until you get into a human for real. Sure. Yeah. And, and I'm curious to kind of follow that up. So obviously it takes a certain amount of time to go through preclinical phase one, phase two, ultimately do all the testing you need to do to get, get a, you know, to approval. But how does exclusivity and kind of the timeline on patents ultimately affect valuation um, when looking at, at making an investment? And how does that, you know, do you, do you look at how long these trials are going to take in comparison to another um, and see how much of the kind of exclusivity is going to be used up during that time period or how, and how does that generally impact the valuation when looking at making an investment? Yeah. Um, another great question. Yes. Obviously there's so much into it that uh, you want to recover back um, your investment. Um, and, you know, I think that as long as, so it's kind of, it's good that we talked about what the potential, what the other side of the rainbow potentially is. Yeah, you know? yeah. So as, as you, if you did the math and you obviously realize that you don't need a lot of time actually once it's approved. Sure. You know? And so if, if things go according to plan um, and, and if, if it's, let's just take the entire bucket where it's, let's say it's 400 million, right? And if it's a really good drug, it is, it is conceivable, it has happened that you could recover that 400 million in one year sure. after the approval, right? Yeah. So um, you definitely want a situation where your patent expires several years after projected approval date. But at the end of the day, I think it's not for the game that we're playing. It's it's not it's not a complete deal breaker if it's not as long as possible because there are market exclusivity scenarios in the United States and also in Europe, especially for biologicals, as you know. So a lot of the times that as long as it's a new chemical entity and you may not have a composition matter patent, but you do get some market exclusivity with the first approval in the United States. But yeah, I wouldn't want to invest heavily in something that has the projected original patent expiry before the approval. But you know, I don't think it's necessary for you to have you know 15 years post approval of complete market exclusivity just based on patents because things will change. There's likely to be a second or even a third generation and you will start working on this, you know, there's life cycle management of the patents as well. And so there are, there are ways for you to continue market exclusivity. Um, and, and, you know, you know, it, it is, it is a significant factor. It's not the sole deciding factor. I think, and at the end of the day, what, what you want, is you want a drug that works really well for a particular patient population. Um, and, if, and if you have that, one way or another, chances are you're gonna win in terms of an investor. And what's also interesting is that if you look at, this, this could be something for you to do as homework or whatever, go and look at, go, go, go and find a list of the top 20 or 25 uh, selling prescription drugs. And I already told you Humira is one of them. You'd be shocked at how many are off patent and they're still on that list. 
and there, there are various reasons for that. Um, and uh, for example, I think uh, you you don't think of Pfizer as a vaccine company, except recently, lately. But I actually think that right now, you look at Pfizer's top-selling drug. It's probably a vaccine. It's a Prevnar vaccine. And if I'm not mistaken, somebody has to do all the fact-checking. Um, it is in the top 20 in, in, in the world, and it is out of patent, but it's still there. Yeah. You know, so, so just be wary of that. There, there's, well, I guess the bottom line I'm trying to say is that there are other ways that you can get market exclusivity and defend your turf even though the patent has run out. But you definitely want a situation where, as you're making the investment early on and you're calculating the timelines, you want the patent to expire after the projected date of approval. But you don't need an enormous amount of time on that. Because if you know what you're doing commercially, you can kind of secure the market and defend it. Sure. Yeah, that's no, that's great insight into kind of what the, the realistic kind of impact of, of exclusivity is. Practical, on that. Yeah. yeah, practical. Yeah. Practical matter. Yeah, exactly. No, that's great. And then so to move on to maybe something outside of a little bit of pharmaceuticals itself. So I know you guys invest in pharmaceuticals, medical devices, healthcare services, and kind of healthcare IT as well. We're, we're curious what maybe your thoughts are, because um, obviously you're looking at potential exit opportunities you know, before you make an investment, do you have any opinions or thoughts on, you know, things like Amazon healthcare and other big tech kind of entering the space in terms of the effect on kind of digital health tools rather than pharmaceuticals and how this might change the landscape in terms of competition and potential exit opportunities? Yeah, again, that's a lot of questions, but, and I'm not, uh, <laughs> I, I really, I've really, it's not that I'm punting on the answer, but it's just, I've really focused on therapeutics as opposed to more healthcare. I personally, in terms of my own investments, as opposed to other other aspects of healthcare. The farm invests in all aspects of healthcare. Uh, yeah, but I really focus on therapeutics. But I will say that on the therapeutic side, in terms of what you brought up, you know, I'm all, I'm all for Amazon trying to figure out a better way to deliver. Uh, all these drugs and all that, you know, I think the, another, another large, in it, so we talked about one inefficiency generally in the industry, which is the fact that big pharma, big biotech, they seem to have forgotten how to innovate and how to invent new drugs. And so they just buy it. So another big inefficiency is in the commercial side, how we actually price things and sell things. And to make a very long story, and this would be another very good topic for you to delve into in a separate thing altogether, is there are a lot of, it turns out that there are a lot of middlemen, middle people, uh, to be gender unbiased along this pathway. Um, and I think that there's a huge opportunity for Amazon to simplify the whole system and to cut back a lot of the money going through all these middle people, you know. So from what what I mean is that from the time that the innovator, the pharmaceutical company makes the drug until it gets to, to the end user to the patient, there's a lot of steps along those lines. And it seems like to put it in a crass way, every time, every time the money crosses your desk, people take it. You know, and so I would like to see a situation where the lot, the the number of desks being crossed goes down dramatically. The number of little people in between the innovator and the end user, the patient, um, just decreases. And I think that's where Amazon could have a tremendous impact. You know, and so if there's a way to make it more efficient that way, uh, it would be great. You know, but having said that. A lot of the, I think another thing that you need to, at a very high level, you know, a lot of people um, think that the rising cost of healthcare is due to the rising cost of drug prices going up, prescription drug prices going up. I 
I don't actually, again, I don't think that's true. I think, and again, you need to fact check it. Um, but I actually think that, you know, the cost, if you take the total cost of healthcare spending in the United States and you ask what percentage is that due to prescription drugs, you know, it, I, I would guess the number is much smaller than you think. It's way less than half. It's probably something like 10 or 15%. It's quite small. And so the the effect of increasing drug prices and all that in the total spending of healthcare is not significant in that sense. So what is the significant part? I actually think it, you'd have to look it up, but I think it's more the services and the hospitals. So, you know, the what you pay doctors, how much it costs you to stay in the hospital. And these, these are by far much, much bigger costs. And so I don't know in that sense if, getting back to your original question, I don't know if the Amazons and all that could dramatically affect that so much. They would, they could affect, I think, the increase in spending in prescription drugs, but in the overall scheme of things, that's just, you know, one little slice of the big pizza. And what you, you can, you can reduce that by some percentage, which is significant, but if you're starting with a f small slice to begin with, in the total size of the spending dollars, it's not going to make too much difference. So. Yeah. Yeah, really appreciate the, the insight into into the kind of how Amazon might disrupt the space with that. Um, I'm curious, you know, this is more of like a broad question and it's kind of loaded, but what, what do you think like the biggest trends in, in healthcare and pharmaceutical are over the next few years? I know, um, I don't know if you know of like ARK Invest and Kathy Wood, but she's kind of made uh, the whole like genomics revolution, like very popular in the public markets in terms of investing and she talks about things like CRISPR, um, like DNA sequencing technology, gene editing, stuff like that. I'm curious just like what you think kind of the big trends are going forward and if you think there's any particular areas that uh, have like a lot of potential. Yeah, I mean, I still think that, um, you know, I, the way I, the way we've made money is really just Kind of cure diseases. It's still specific to those molecules, and um, I, I have, I've tried to stay away from betting on sort of trends and fads, and until it actually proves itself that you know there's a molecule from that platform technology that actually works well, and mm -hmm. um, that's because I think that. Um, you can still make a lot of money after that point. You know, <laughs> it's true. If you get right, you can make a lot of money before. But I'm thinking, why do you need to take that risk if you don't have to? You know? Sure. So, so, with that in mind, um, I think all this technological development is great, and precision medicine is great, and you know, changing the genome and gene therapy is fine. Let people try it, but. I still like the tried and true of this is a molecule, this is a drug, and it'll help this kind of patient. So if you look at it in that trend, I think we're, we're still in this boom of uh, the monoclonal antibody industry. You know, And if you, you think about it, again, check my numbers. I mean, I think it started, the first approval was uh, in the mid-90s, I would want to say. So... 25 years ago, um, it, I think it was uh, an antibody against transplant, OKT3, and it was uh, it made a couple hundred million a year. And uh, today, there are roughly 100, I would say, monoclonal antibodies. And uh, I'm not sure what total sales of monoclonal antibodies were, uh, probably close to 100 billion. Per year and growing, and uh, and so I still think that that's 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 a wave that I think people thought would have crashed already, but it hasn't. It's still it's still going, and so that to me is more of a a nearer term thing, you know, in terms of. Mm -hmm. So I would say that 
if you ask what the trends are, it's still, again, going back to just you go back to the list of the top 20 drugs, uh, money-making drugs, prescription drugs, that is, I think a lot of them you'll find the monoclonal antibodies. Humira, we already talked about, that's an outlier at 20 billion per year, you know, one and a half billion per month or whatever it is, and that's an antibody. Um, and and there are whole, I don't know, in that 20, um, I mean, I would say maybe not half, but close to half. And so, and there's still a lot in the pipeline. Um, you see just with Corona, with respect to the vaccines, you have the vaccines, which are trying to elicit antibodies. And then, of course, you can deliver antibodies. And there have been a few antibodies with emergency use authorization. Um, and so, Regeneron, really, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think there'll, there'll probably likely be more, and there'll be more of them in infectious disease. There's certainly a lot in oncology, Aceptin, Avastin. Those are all, you know, some of the largest drugs that are still monoclonal antibodies. So I, I still like the idea of picking very carefully based on science what the pharmaceutical target is that you want to inhibit or affect, and then try to develop an inhibitor to that. If you can do a small molecule that you can swallow, that's great. You do it that way. Yeah. And if you cannot, and this antibody boom seems to be still booming. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it's become even, you know, just the entire prescription drug industry uh, is, I, I think, I think we make, I think, is about $1 trillion per year spent in drugs, but most of it is over-the-counter. It's roughly, I think, two-thirds over-the-counter, one-third prescription. So mm. that would make it like uh, $350 million or so prescription drugs um, per year. And if the antibody is uh, $100 million plus, that's almost, it's crazy. It's almost one-third of all prescription drugs by value, you know, and, oh. so, and it's growing. And so I think if you, if I had to pick a field, it's that and the delivery of it. So, so it would be the manufacture. When we first started manufacturing monoclonal antibodies, it was tough, and it still is tough. There's a lot of steps to it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's more cookie cutter. And so, if you want trends that are, you know, kind of further out, it would be how, how do you Basically, how, is it, how do you find an antibody easier? How do you make it easier? How do you mass produce it easier? How do you deliver it easier? You know, it's still there. I mean, with with gene therapy, you know, it, it it's great on paper. And so I don't know if uh, you guys looked up what some of our investments were. You know, one time we made a special strain of mice, and I, so basically a new form of a rat also that we made, and you know we obviously that's a form of gene therapy, but not sure. in a human in a rat. And mm -hmm. I can tell you that from that experience, a lot of unexpected things happen, and so when you talk about gene therapy, you know it's you have to consider. And I'm not blowing smoke in the industry, and I'm happy for everybody who's doing gene therapy, and I'm not trying to, uh, you know, turn it off or anything. But you just don't know what the really long-term consequences are yet, because sure. it's still failing, you know. Yeah. And it's a case of the unknown unknowns. And so, as an investor, why would I risk going into the unknown unknown if I don't have to, and mm -hmm. I can still make money? I don't have to. If I if you if I couldn't make money and I, you were forcing me to go into the unknown unknown to make money, then yeah, I would consider doing that. <laughs> I think. I, but it was a great question. Yeah, yeah. Why why not stick with the with the strategy that's working, right? <laughs> awesome. And I don't think it. You know, I don't think it's the going back to specifically the antibody thing. I don't think it's that wave has crashed yet. Mm -hmm. So we're hundred now that are roughly a hundred that have been approved in history and there's still a lot in the pipeline. So yeah. you can still ride that way. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. 
Um, so just to, to wrap up, we talked a lot about um, your work in, in the healthcare uh, space, but we're curious kind of just as a broad question, um, if you could talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges you've had in your career, maybe a time that you failed and, and something that you kind of learned from that. You know, a lot of our audience is like college students and you obviously had a, have a lot of wisdom from your, your time uh, in the industry. So kind of anything along those lines would be, would be great to hear. Yeah, uh, lots of failures, lots of uh, lots of stories. Um, you know, I think that from from just from the venture side and from the building company side, um, when I look at the failures and I look back on why they failed, I think that the probably the mo- the biggest most common sort of denominator so to speak the and you call it the most prevalent reasoning is that you know different people who were quote unquote in charge or important people in the company they they wanted to go in different directions so it's it's and that caused the failure Ultimately, sure. if you if you want to put it at a, I mean, I mean, I'm happy to go into as much detail as you want, and it's almost, I think, um, incredibly illustrative. Then it would be kind of like the Harvard Medical Harvard Business School case study, you know, <laughs> break it down. But, but it, it would be like, you know, that's why you have one captain in a ship, you know, sort of base. Mm-hmm one Captain Kirk and there's all kinds of people giving him information, Spark and Scotty and mm-hmm. everybody. And, but it's his decision and he makes the yeah. decision. And and the reason why it it is that way is because you can keep everybody on the same page and um, you know, everybody's buying into what you're trying to do. And what I mean by everybody, so so who's everybody in the company? It means the owners, the shareholders, and it means obviously the management team, and it means the board of directors primarily, and obviously it means all the key employees in the company and the rank and file. So I think that um, to flip it around, when when I consider, you know, we've been lucky, I've been lucky, and there is a tremendous amount of luck involved. Uh, in it, um, the big, big successes has been, they all have had that characteristic where basically everybody, the entire team, all these stakeholders were on the same page. They were trying to think, oh, this is what we have to do. We have to get this drug approved and for, and this is how, this is the path that we want to take, you know? Um, and and I think I think that at the end that's without getting into too detail, but just at a very high level, I think maybe to use a sports analogy would be like you know everybody on the whole team understanding that this is what the team is good at. You know, let's let's play offense first and then defense later. Or play defense this time. You can't have half the team thinking. We'll emphasize offense, and the other half thinking we'll emphasize defense. You know, everybody—the GM, the manager, the players, the superstars—they have to buy in into the same page of the playbook. And I think that's that's been the biggest mistake. If you can't, if you start all these major stakeholders, if if the board is trying to go one way and the management's going the other way and the shareholders going a different, I mean, it's not going to work. You know, and that's ultimately that's what causes the failure. I mean, you can pinpoint from then the consequences of that is because this trial was not done properly, this and that and the other thing. But in terms of the source of the problem, I would say it's because you just couldn't stay together in the same playbook for that amount of time that would be required to get an exit. And that can be a long time. Yeah, no, those are those are a great answer, and and I think this was a, a very productive and, and insightful conversation generally about 
healthcare and about venture capital, about investing, we, we do like to kind of end off with a, a, a quick little section of just kind of rapid fire wrap up questions that aren't <clears throat> super related to, you know, your, your professional work or your career. Um, but you can, uh, you, you can make it as related as you like. So we like to keep this around like 10 to 15 seconds, but, you know, take as much time as you need. So first is just kind of what books are you reading right now? Or what's a book that you might recommend to some of our listeners? Um, I'm like, right now, To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. It's a classic. Great. I, yeah, I, I love that. Yep. Uh, second one is, what skill are you trying to develop right now? Or would you like to develop in the future? Or alternatively, what's a, a specific area that you might be kind of looking to learn more about? Any of these could be not professional. Right? I'm trying to, right. I'm trying to play the piano. Awesome. That's great. So the next is, how do you stay up to date with the uh, latest developments in your industry, in healthcare, entrepreneurship, um, and are there any kind of specific news sources that you'd recommend to anyone? Uh, not specifically. I actually, because I get so much email from all these analysts, yeah. and so if I just go through my, I get about, whatever, 200 emails a day, and if I just go through, I don't read all 200, <laughs> but if I them. There's so many things that are related to analysts. Uh, I keep up with industry that way. I do subscribe to the New York Times still back from the days that yep. when my firm, before I joined Essex, uh, I was in New York City. And so I still think that, that that is a very good source of information, all things considered. Great. Perfect. So next is, uh, who is your favorite CEO, either current or past? Uh, wow, that is a tough one. I, I assume that you mean that somebody that I've worked with. It could be someone you've worked with. It could be someone you know about. It doesn't have to be uh, specific in any way. Oh. Uh, if, well, if I say somebody who I work with and everybody else who I've worked with. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, we'll steer away from that then. Yeah, so... Um, uh, you know, let me think about that. I, 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 you know, I don't, I still like Stephen Jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Perfect. So then the next will be, uh, if you could start a company in any industry, maybe outside healthcare, which would it, which would you choose? And maybe a little about why? I would definitely choose healthcare. Okay. <laughs> that's kind of what I thought. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, and the why is simply because that's that's what I know really well, and I also think that it's one of these. It's being a healthcare venture capitalist. It's it's a dream job in the sense that you know when you look at it, everybody can win. Uh, you know, you you create jobs, uh, you create a lot. Of, there's a lot of wealth generation for a lot of people. You. Um, Presumably, you're producing a really valuable drug that has huge clinical value. You're helping sick patients, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all of that, and there's, there's very little, you know, that's really bad about it. So I would, I would with that. All right, everyone. That wraps up our conversation with Jeff Himawan, Managing Director at EW Healthcare Partners. Uh, we're going to skip a debrief this time. Um, a lot of the stuff that we talked about was pretty self-explanatory outside of maybe some of the more uh, technical healthcare related topics that Alex and I are not experts on. Um, so we're going to hopefully put up an article on our website detailing a little bit more stuff on healthcare investing. So definitely, you know, check out our article section of our website in the future and sign up for our newsletter on our website. Um, also encourage you guys to follow us on Instagram and we'll Hopefully I have a TikTok up soon as well, which will be fun. Um, so give both of those a follow and uh, thanks for listening.